0: Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Sexplanations podcast, episode 85. I am talking over the internet with Henry, who is about to come become a new friend. We're going to have excellent conversations, I hope, about sexiness, whether or not that's okay, uh, dating in general, sexuality, whatever we want to talk about to have fun for the next 45 minutes or so. How does that sound, Henry, new friend?
1: Oh, that sounds absolutely wonderful.
0: Oh, good. <laughs> that's so great. Um, So... Just to do a couple plug things here. First, I want to give a shout out to the Patreon bosses. So if you go to patreon.com slash podcast, you can support the show, which is really beneficial. It helps it going. It pays for it to get edited. <laughs> I'm just doing this for free um, because I love giving another gift to our audience. But yeah, it would be really cool if it was self-supporting. And, um, some of those bigger donors we call the bosses and their shout out names are Ben Trammell, Donna Flint, the Millers and Zip Wah. So I want to give them a shout out and to you too, Henry, um, you are a fan and and supporter of the show. So I'm, I'm reaching out to be like, Hey, I have this episode that I think would be really cool for us to talk about. What do you think?
1: That's excellent. I'm really happy to be joining the program.
0: Awesome. Cool. Um, So we've already discussed what makes you maybe an interesting candidate for this particular discussion. But will you tell everyone else Uh, um, what you you told me about like your upbringing and your lifestyle?
1: Oh, sure. So uh, something a little bit unusual about me is that. Um, I do have a mother and a father, but they divorced when I was very young. And so my mom and her partner and my older sister were uh, the sort of main people who raised me and they were very influential in uh, the way I view kind of. All of the world, but specifically in this realm, how I view uh, women and how I view dating and how I view sexuality—it was a—it was a unique experience. At least I've never talked to anyone who had a, uh, an upbringing quite like that, and uh, I think it's—it's it's led to a lot of interesting stories, situations um, that I—I I know love to share, love to talk about.
0: I wonder how rare it is. Maybe it's not. Maybe if it's you- not. Have a similar upbringing to Henry's, we let us know in the comments and on Twitter and all the places. Just be like, I'm like Henry too. It'll be a new <laughs> hashtag. So you were raised by your mom and your mom's partner. Do you mm-hmm. call them both mom? Uh,
1: I tell other people that I do because it's kind of cute, but not mm-hmm. really. I uh, my birth mom, I call mom and then I call her partner by her first name usually. Um, but when I'm telling stories, I'm like, well, my mom and then my other mom. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. Aww. It's kind of cute.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then your sister, how much older is she than you?
1: Uh, five years. Five years. Yeah.
0: Okay. And these are the female influences in your life who have taught you to think about ladies in what kind of way?
1: Well, um, they sort of, they're not always the, how do I say this? Um, The not as nice way as they're like, well, Henry, men are kind of shit in this world, but here, (sighs) here's our opportunity to like mold a good guy for like womankind. Uh, So like, From the old school side, there was a lot of sort of chivalry and things like that were sort of embedded into me. But then there was a lot of just sort of being okay with yourself, being okay with sexuality. Um, So, I remember one of the things my mom did uh, was maybe 13, 14... no, actually, maybe even 12. She told me very early on, like, hey, I'm going to put a bowl of condoms in your bedroom. That's just it's going to be a bowl. It's going to be for you. And whenever it's empty and you need it refilled, you just let me know. No questions asked. It will get refilled. Uh, so that's one example of how they were just very open about sexuality and it made it OK to talk about. It wasn't something that was so scary. Um, but at the same time they were open about it too, which would kind of freak me out. Like I remember I think I was about 15 and I'm waiting for my mom to take me somewhere. I look on the kitchen table and there's a sex toy catalog just on the kitchen table they had left out. And as a 15 year old boy, uh, that really freaked me out. Um, so I'm just sort of staring at it blankly. And my mom comes in and I say, uh, uh, I, let's go. And <laughs> the, the next day she says, uh, you know, Henry, I, I think I know what you saw. Um, but I just want you to know if you have any questions, you can, you can ask like, nope, nope, I'm good. Like, no, but if, if there's anything you want to know, no, no, I'm fine. Um, so it was, it was kind of interesting to get that other side or, and I remember actually a few years later, we were with some of their friends telling that story and they're laughing about it. And my mom goes, and it was open to the strap on page. And I went, (laughs) I didn't remember that part. (laughs) So anyway, they're, they're a lot of fun in that way, but then it's, uh a story that i sometimes tell on dates because it it just really helps hammer home the type of both openness and yet kind of uh the the double-edged sword of that i mean i'm still really grateful for it but it's like um i remember when i was 17 i brought a girl home i was going to school uh, away from home going to a boarding school and my girlfriend wasn't a local, so she came to visit for a while. And my mom was like, "All right, you're 17. We're going to treat you like an adult. Um, so if your girlfriend wants to share your bed, like we understand." Um, I asked her about it years later, and she said, "Well, we're no idiots. We know what happens once we go to bed at night. Why make it harder mm-hmm. for you?" Which, again, is an attitude I really appreciated. But that yeah. first, but that first night, she's like, "Henry, I want to, uh, I want at- to talk to you. Okay, so." I go upstairs and my mom's in the bedroom and she's sitting on the bed, she sort of pats the bed. It's like, go ahead, sit down. So I do. She's like, um, she's like, I want to ask you a question. Okay. What is it? She says, uh, Henry, are you making your girlfriend orgasm on a regular basis? And I'm like, I'm 17. That is a, a very hard conversation to have. With your mother at that age, but we had a, we had a whole talk about it. And, uh, in the morning I'm making breakfast and my other mom walks in and she goes, you know, Henry, I, uh, I overheard you last night and I got to say, you're awfully whiny before sex. You might want to work on that. So, this
0: sounds like a TV show.
1: I know, right? So, but it's been it's been a total blessing because anytime I had questions about um, about birth control or um, what I mean, I've had times where it's like, oh no, my my girlfriend started bleeding. I was that bad? Did did we do something wrong? Does she need to see someone? I wasn't afraid to talk to my mom about that. I had no embarrassment. My girlfriend's not always the same case uh, if they were comfortable with me talking to my mom about this stuff, either of them. But I've always been comfortable with them. Uh, and that's that's really I don't know. It's it's made sex this very open and approachable subject, not this sort of weird taboo thing. And, uh, growing up in the Midwest, as you can imagine, not the best sex education. Uh, I was brought up in the, uh, the abstinence, uh, type of mentality. Um, I, I can still remember so many moments from that early those early sex ed classes that were laughable at the time and arguably horrifying in retrospect. Um, I remember we had this sort of there was a green timeline and a red timeline, and the green one showed your physical intimacy progressing, and since it was green, it was okay. But then it would switch to this red timeline, and so the green it was like hugging and holding hands and kissing, but then the first thing on the the red line was french kissing and they're like that's where you don't want to go because that leads to sexual desire and you don't want to do that before marriage now i was i was 14 at the time but because of the environment i've been grown up i had grown up in i mean i just laughed it off um but now i'm a bit older and i think oh my god those people in the classroom who had those sort of repressed upbringings who have parents who aren't so open about this stuff. Maybe they really thought that, Oh, it's a terrible thing. If I'm going to French kiss some boy or girl that I like, I mean, that's Mm. scary stuff.
0: Oh yeah. It's so scary. The things that I've heard, I haven't really experienced a ton of awful sex education myself. I mean, I I have seen it from afar or or heard people's stories. Um, But yeah. Yeah. What I have heard is so traumatic for people mm-hmm. and it really connects something that I think is beautiful and pleasurable with a lot of trauma and shame. It's a bummer. It is. So I'm glad that you had an upbringing where you could ask questions. Um, I don't know that you have to change your precoital squeakiness though.
1: <laughs> or whininess, is that what you whininess. said? I've, whininess. Whininess. Now it's been a long time so I don't know exactly what she meant but I was probably like she might have said I was she was tired and I was like no come on don't you want to please uh, that's that's what I can oh. imagine 17 year old me doing I mean he he was only so charming so <laughs> I don't know Uh-huh. but so but,
0: maybe less of the <laughs> Henry don't harass her
1: Yeah, uh, I definitely, I don't think it was going that far, but yeah, it was, uh, it was something in that area, I'm, I'm sure. Um, But, and, but also I remember my mom sobbing to me on the phone when I lost my virginity, which really, uh, which really confused me. She really wanted me to wait till college and I wasn't quite sure why I still, I'm not quite sure why, but because we were open about this stuff. Actually, what happened was that um, she figured it out without me even having to tell her. But when she asked, I wasn't going to lie. Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, it had been a month or two, and I I asked her something about when she knew that her partner was the one, and Aww. for her, that was the sign. She's like. He's had sex. He's now having serious feelings, and then later, because uh, she asked me, and I said yes, I, I have lost my virginity. And then later, she said, "When the last time I saw you with your girlfriend, I saw the way you looked at her, and it was different, and I could tell right away." So there, the uh, I don't want to generalize, but in my experience, women, at least women in my life, can be very perceptive. So I was I was amazed by that but um but we talked about it and she she accepted it and obviously was very open about everything after that and and like i said just it Wonderful to have that openness and have that resource always available within my own family.
0: Yes. Wow. Kudos to them. Yeah. I I hope that either they hear this or you can just pass on the message from Dr. Joe that I am grateful to them.
1: Oh, you got it. For their efforts. Absolutely.
0: I have a curiosity about part of it. So they give you condoms, a bowl of condoms around age 12. Did they teach you how to use them?
1: No, they did not. And that, so while they were open Open. It wasn't, they weren't, there was an open attitude, but there wasn't a lot of teaching, um, uh, especially in that area. There was a lot of just don't get her pregnant. So there was a lot of education mm. about why it was important to wear a condom and to know what kind of birth control she might be on. But no, we didn't talk about proper use. And I can say that actually not, it took me a while to learn how to use them properly. And it took me like seven or eight years to find properly sized ones. No one told me that you might be wearing the wrong size. That had never occurred to me. And once I figured that out, that saved a host of issues. Because it's also an ego thing. It's like, I don't want to admit that maybe I need a larger size. Um, That's me like being overly confident. But then once I used one, I realized, oh my God, makes a world of difference. This is actually the way it's supposed to work.
0: The condom size thing is something that I wouldn't have thought of to to teach people that they're different sizes. I guess on Sexplanations, I talk about a fit kit, which you can get from different companies to measure the length and girth to determine the best condom brand. But it's that kind of thing that happens on the podcast where people will Mm -hmm. bring up things that they have learned throughout their life about sexuality that I'm gosh, that is something that I wouldn't have thought about Saying in a sex ed class, but it has clearly made a difference for this person. All these things, sex ed, it needs to be taught the way we teach math and English. Let's just get rid of math and English and just teach sex education. And in the process, teach people how to write and read and calculate. But not, you know, you don't. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I like this it. is my bias. <laughs> I, I I understand.
0: Wow! So you didn't learn how to put them on. But nope. you had access to them. The reason why I bring that up is because I had been teaching teenagers how to put condoms on for, I don't know, a decade before my own kiddo. So, she was 17. I was her foster mom. There isn't that um, bond at birth that I, I do know people make that distinction when you're talking about uh, fostered or adoptive children. But there's right. still this social relationship dynamic of mother-daughter. And I, I know that because I had been teaching teenagers how to put up in condoms for years. And when it came to her, I was like, here's a condom. <laughs> <laughs> and then had to take a deep breath and be like, nope, that is what traditional parents do or caregivers. And I want to be the caregiver that I proselytize about, like take it to the next level, teach them how to use it. And so not only did I teach them how to use it, but I was like, okay, now show me that you know how to do it. Okay. Now show me, you know how to do it again. Now show me, you know how to do it with your eyes closed. Like Touch this thing, and uh, what like remove the fear of the unknown or the unfamiliar, and just have it be this secondary part of your body. And it does; it removes so much worry about it and stigma. And then people are just like ah, condoms everywhere on my <laughs> arms, on my legs, <laughs> on my head.
1: So now, I like hearing I, other people's stories. Well, I should I should specify now that I think about it. While my mothers did not teach me, it is very possible they offered and that I declined through personal embarrassment. I, uh-huh.
0: <laughs> it's
1: a long time ago so it's hard to remember but I could easily see my mom saying you know I've got some bananas if you want me to show you and I'm sure 15 year old me 14 year old me would have been like no that's terrible. I'm fine. It's easy enough. I I could easily see myself doing or saying something like that. Did they
0: encourage you to use them for masturbation or was it just presume, presumed that it was for
1: intercourse? I don't think there was any sort of assumption. The the key was they're there if you need them and then if you need more just let us know. Although, uh, she made a big deal about it for a long time and then when it came time for this to actually happen. It wasn't a jar. She just bought me boxes. Ah, uh, so yeah, not, cool. not that that's better or worse, but, and the funny thing is the first time I went to have sex, I didn't think it was going to happen. So all the condoms were back in my dorm. So I had to go out and buy them and I didn't know what to buy. It, it It's kind of, I think about it as like the moment I became a man, it was such a, it was such a strange experience of like, I'm 16 at the time and I'm visiting my girlfriend. I'm at her folks place for the weekend and I didn't think she wanted to. And it was a big deal to me. And since I hadn't didn't think it was going to happen, I left my my box that my mom had bought me at the dorm. And so she was too embarrassed to get. This was like a town of a few hundred, a very small town. So she's like, we can't buy them in town. We're going to have to go to the next town over. And wow. I, I listened to her. I, I wasn't going to say no uh, or <laughs> argue. <laughs> so, we went to we, went, we drove like 20 30 minutes to a Shell station. And I, and she stays in the car, I go and I get into the the convenience store and there's like a maybe teenager, maybe college kid at the cashier, nobody else. And I stand and there are only two condom choices. They're like three packs. One is like a thin and one is a ribbed. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday and I'm just staring because I have to make a choice. And then I hear the cashier go, oh, I see what you're looking at. Uh, uh. <laughs> and I, I was mortified. I was like, oh, my God, just get me out of here. So I grabbed both. <laughs> nice. so I take him to the to the register. And as he's ringing me out, some more teenagers or college kids come in. And I don't know any of these people, but all of a sudden they see what's on the counter. And they're like, oh, someone's getting laid tonight and all this stuff. And I'm like, just get me wow. out of here. Uh, Lots of celebration for you. Oh, it was nuts. And I uh, so I, I paid. I got in the car. And my girlfriend was like, so did you get them? I'm like, Yes. Can we go, please? <laughs> so embarrassing. And it didn't even happen that weekend, of course. Well, we tried, but it was one of those, all right, my parents are gone. We have 10 minutes. Go. And I was not in a condition to uh, to perform under that kind of anxiety. So I, I think that's something that people sometimes forget how lucky they are that uh, most of their life they can have sex with. Anytime they want relatively. But when you're first sexually active, there is so much. Most of the time, there's so much sneaking around and trying to find, are, are the parents gone or are we going to drive out to some park or whatever? It's just like a whole new world um, that years later, you totally forget that you ever had to deal with.
0: Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah.
1: Anyway, sorry to go on such a long rant. These are just fun. No, stories.
0: I'm just I'm. Learning and thinking about so much. Uh, it's interesting to me how the sex shame can motivate people to drive a half an hour to a different city to get condoms. And then there's embarrassment when people are celebrating you having sex and thinking about you doing that. When, right in that scenario, you have a cashier who is going to probably be working behind this conveyor belt for the next hour or evening while you're having sex. Um,
1: Like,
0: you're in a position of pleasure here, but there's still embarrassment for you. And it's so fascinating to me how... We respond to different sexual things and different sexual experiences, and how that changes throughout time, or if we're given permission to think about it differently.
1: Right. Yeah. And and for me, that's something that changed with my own personal sexual confidence because not even two years later, I'm going off to college and I got an apartment as an 18 year old. I'm like at Walgreens with my mom, and we're getting toiletries, and we go by the section with the condoms and the lubricant, and she's like, "All right." Henry, are you stocked up on condoms? Or are you stocked up on lube? And I said, I could always use more. So we grab some with, with, you know, my body watch and shampoo and everything. And we go to the counter and the cashier starts talking to us. She's like, do you know he grabbed these items? And my mom is there and says very proudly, yes, I'm buying them. And the cashier is like, are you sure? And I wasn't that embarrassed because I was like, yeah, I need them. Please ring us up. So it, at that point, because I had been sexually active for a while, the, a lot of that embarrassment had completely gone away. Um, and I was completely happy to have my mom there helping me and, and providing that. And, yeah. that. and that actually reminds me of another thing, again, unusual with the openness. When I had my own place, my mom, one of her priorities was you need to have extra toothbrushes you need to have Dove soap. Uh, women aren't going to want to smell like a man and use a manly soap if they have an unexpected sleepover. You want to make sure they have stuff so that they feel comfortable.
0: Oh, uh, good job, moms.
1: I know. That was... that was. Uh, I've never heard of anybody else uh, having an experience like that one. Although I've also heard the joke, what, are you running a bed and breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> anyway.
0: I don't know. My friends who... I- are men they get laid more often when they have tampons and condoms, and they just have better relationships than uh, you know? I think it's because the consideration is built in, but that's thoughtful.
1: Yes. And uh, and later I learned um, contact solution was another great one to always have on hand because <laughs> oh, I don't I don't yeah. wear contacts or glasses, but lots of people do.
0: Very so, thoughtful. There you go. So can we talk a little bit about whether or not it's okay to be sexy?
1: Yes. And I watched that video and I, I'll have an interesting uh, uh, thought to add, but let's talk about it.
0: Okay. So uh, if you're not familiar with this explanations podcast, it follows in chronological order this explanations videos. And the one that we're on is this episode that I did around Halloween where I wear as many different costumes as I had on hand. Uh, you know, trying to play up the sexy Halloween get up, even though I'm commenting on how I'm in Missoula, Montana, and it's 20 degrees or something very cold. Right. That's 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And just being like, this is, this is a weird thing we do, but we want, to be sexy. Obviously it drives an entire market. Is that okay? Is it okay to dress up like a sexy musketeer or a sexy matador, et cetera. And I, I answer the question to the best of my ability, but I always love hearing what other people think. What are your thoughts, Henry?
1: It's really complicated. <laughs> yes. that, that would be my, my first thought. And I think it affects my sex or gender far less because I don't really have to think about it when I'm going to dress up. Uh, I'm probably going to have most of my skin covered in any sort of outfit or costume, but let's say I'm going to be Michael Phelps and put on a Speedo. I don't think anybody's going to give me much crap for that either. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other side, I mean, it's a minefield. Um, I remember... Um I there like I've I've talked about how beneficial it is having two moms but sometimes it made me scared and tried to like overcompensate. For years I had a fear of objectifying women. Mm-hmm. So I remember having uh dating a woman and f- after a few dates she said, "You know, you've never given me a single physical compliment." And I said, "Well, I don't want to objectify you." And she said, "Well, damn it, tell me I'm pretty something. What do you <laughs> like?" and it was this thing that just i had for a long time tried to avoid cuz i didn't want to say like oh you look really nice and oh i don't look nice other times or oh are you trying to get something just like my mind went to that sort of that bad place and and thought of the worst automatically but even to this day it's something that it uh it's it's complicated it's not straightforward if i like for instance, sometimes I might have a female coworker, and I think her outfit looks really nice. But I don't think there's a good way for me to tell her that without it coming off as wrong or with some sort of agenda. And I just literally want to compliment her because I think she has a great dress on or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as a guy who's trying to be so cautious, it is it is a tough world to figure out.
0: Well, and, and for all genders, I think because True. on the, I guess, receiving end of that possible objectification or even the compliments that are good intentioned, uh, it can be exhausting or confusing or manipulative or misleading. And so, yeah, to everyone out there, we acknowledge <laughs> that this is a confusing time.
1: <laughs> I, I know when you go further in the video, you talk about Um, different things that people choose to do to make themselves sexy or not sexy whether it comes to their weight or hair loss and other things like that and when the video touches on that that's something where I have actually had some experience that I didn't think I would. So for one instance, uh, after college, I was quite overweight um, and I was dating at that time and I didn't get a lot of attention from people in the dating world. And then I ended up losing 70 pounds. And when I was single again and started dating, everything changed. I got so much more attention. People looked at me differently. People listened to me uh, in a different way. And I was still the same person. Um, And it was that was a hard thing for me, because on the one hand, it made me really happy, but also made me sad thinking about the way I used to be and other people who aren't given uh, necessarily the opportunity they should be to be seen and heard in the same way just because of their physical appearance.
0: Mm, Yeah, there's a lot of layers to this conversation for sure.
1: And then when I was thinking about the hair removal, that's an interesting thing where. Um, I uh, like to shave my legs as a cyclist. So there are reasons a cyclist shaves their legs. It has to do with aerodynamics. It also has to do with when you crash your bike and you have all that skin removed, which is unfortunate, but it happens. It's a lot easier to treat the wound, things like that. It's easier to put on sunscreen. So it's just a very practical thing. And I've dated some women who are uncomfortable dating a guy who has shaved legs and that's something i never thought i would come across it's like well i am secure in my masculinity i don't think it has any uh any bearing on that are you not secure in my masculinity um i remember one woman i dated who had a problem with that i also asked her well what if next halloween i decide to dress in drag would would that be upsetting to you and she said yes uh which again was something because I was I was brought up in this way that people are so open and understanding, I just really didn't think it would flip the switch on me that way. Um, and that was someone who I mean that that made me uncomfortable. It's like, wait, I can't express myself because of the way you you view your gender norms. Um, that was that was rough, and it gave me the slice of oh my god, that's for people who have to deal with this all the time. That is that is hard when you just want to express yourself and have a little fun i've i know i will make an ugly woman if i ever dress in drag but i think it would be fun why can't i try it
0: yeah or you wouldn't make an ugly one wo- i mean
1: that's to quote my that, mother that
0: thing too right is i think we're shifting and our communication and our understanding of people to be like okay is there ugly do we mark that or is their gender is a skirt somehow related to certain reproductive organs and are certain reproductive organs even related to the way that you feel as a person and want to express yourself gender wise. So I I am confused by it that as you are, I love having hairy legs because it is excruciating for me to remove hair. And uh, my partner removes his armpit hair more than I do, like that does that has nothing to do with my genitals, with my mind, with just nothing. Right. Um, but I don't know that we are finished navigating that. I think that there's a lot more to unpack and be curious about around gender and gender expression and beauty and attraction and whether any of that matters, or we're all going to end up wearing gray smocks someday and hunger games, you know,
1: (laughs) I I somehow don't think we're going to end up there.
0: That's a, that's the divergent series. I'm mixing up my dystopias. Ah, yes. Sorry. What were you saying?
1: That's okay. No. um, Well, I was going to transition and ask um, one thing I'd love to hear more from you about is the, is the dress codes when it comes to school. Cause that's something where I feel like I my opinion is uh it's it's more like I, I'm afraid to almost have an opinion because it's I can see instantly how complicated it is the that um that intersection of self-expression and distraction. Um, but why am I distracting? I'm just being myself, and this is just my body and who I am. And I know you, you in the video, you compare it to perfume, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that.
0: Okay. Let's see if I can.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to I, put you on the spot. No,
0: that's great. So, I should say from my own experience, uh, experience the, the perspective that I have is that I have attended private schools, um, probably half of my life, and public schools the other half. So. Um, like the three years of smocks that were plaid and scratchy with white blouses and little red bows. And then uh, I think five years of wear, wear whatever you want. And then puberty was all private schools with very um, mild kind of dress code. But color wise, we had to wear certain things and fabric and there was no um, branding at all. And, closed toed shoes, etc., and then I did mm-hmm. high school, which was either skirts or blazers, and, um, and and then we did have a full-on dress code about half the time, and we went to school on Saturdays. And on and in college, I attended a public university, and you know, got my first pair of jeans and. <laughs> Or, like a, like, a whole wardrobe of jeans, I should say. So, I am familiar with how those outfits did or didn't affect my education.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I would say that an, an additional kind of perspective is watching my teenage daughters go through high school and public schools where they were able to wear, uh, you know, high heels and, Short short shorts and tank tops, like bralettes, etc. Things that we would not have been permitted to wear in either my public or private school settings. Okay, so that being said, <laughs> um, I think that the major kind of guiding lights for me are context and intent. So if the context is that you're going to the beach, it makes a lot of sense to not wear a three piece suit that is more appropriate for something like a wedding or a funeral. And it's more appropriate to wear a bathing suit or like shorts and a tank top, bring a towel, have sunscreen, that kind of thing. And so for education, the context is a place of learning and socializing. And I think that there are ways to dress for that occasion that makes sense. And if you want to express and your sexuality more during that age. I think that that's that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that and I think that can be done after school. Um I don't think that a person's um like how their leggings or whatever fit their bodies is anyone else's business and I don't think that what I wear determines whether or not you act out sexually or you are, um, or I have to change my behavior. But I do think that what I wear can be distracting beyond it being sexual. It can just be distracting because it's like, that is, that is strange for the context and the intent. Like, why is Lindsay wearing a bikini at the funeral? when we are at a funeral and the intent is to focus attention on the person who has passed and not on lindsay's appearance but at the mm. same time if i'm wearing this bikini because it connects me to the deceased and it or or i remember there's a an image of someone i think wearing a a man wearing a bright yellow mini skirt to a funeral because the deceased had asked him to do that right If if that is mm. the intent okay that matches um but yeah Like, what what is the person's intent? If my daughter's intent is to wear clothes that make her comfortable and help her learn or express herself or feel safe in the classroom, okay, if her intent is to uh, harness sexual power so that she can manipulate educators or classmates, that's uh, something that I want to talk to her about and unpack and figure out ways that she can still express herself um, without maybe manipulating other people with her appearance, Ugh. this is, is hard because it's like the language around it is even very controversial.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I assume this is some a conversation you have had with your daughters.
0: Uh, yeah, yes, I have, but very delicately. Um, so the first kiddo that I raised, I remember she she's five ten. So already much taller than me and her peers, and she wanted to buy these three-inch heels to wear to school. And I said no. And at that time, I had a um, I would buy the clothes for my child. Whereas later on in parenting, I would just give them money. But in at this moment, I was like, no, you can't wear those. Not because I want to to shame people who wear that kind of heel or think that you are sexualizing the situation, but because I don't want you to break your ankle and there's no need to be wearing three inch heels when you're going to and from school on a bicycle and then at school. But in retrospect, I was like, gosh, Lindsay, is that any of your business? And was that the right call? And so with the daughters who came later, I was much more lenient with what they wore and tried to um, really send home the message that... They looked beautiful in all things, and that there were ways to wear things that um that they might feel more comfortable in. So they weren't constantly like adjusting or pulling wedgies out or things like that. Like, what about these shorts or what about this top? And then really complementing the things that I think that they would be warm and comfortable in versus uh sexual and naked. And so <laughs> uh I tried that. I think the conversations came when they were employees and their employers would comment about their bodies and definitely discriminate against them because they may wear a pant differently than a a coworker. And in that case, I was like, you want help filing a lawsuit? Like, let's do it because you have every right to wear the same black slacks as the other person. And you're just being discriminated because your body shape is different than that other human. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh gosh, it, it can be really messy though, but I still think that even when I don't get the language right and I say things wrong, it's still important for me to try to practice right. having this conversation with someone like you to kind of work out, okay, where am I flubbing? And I'm sure people will let us know like, Lindsay, that was nope. And like, just practice and practice until it becomes Smarter.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, well, I I appreciate hearing because sometimes I'm I'm overwhelmed by how complicated it is, and it, it's nice to hear somebody who's sort of in this world who's as competent as you are having trouble getting yeah. the language right and thinking about it. So it's that. That's actually, it's refreshing to hear. We oh, live good. in a complicated world. <laughs>
0: yeah, we do. It is it is hard. And I hope that when people watch Explanations or listen to it, that they realize I'm just as human as they are. And that, that the two taglines, right, the one for the videos, which is Stay Curious, and the one for the podcast, which is Encora Amparo, I'm Still Learning, are my way of saying human, fallible? Like, please don't think for one minute that I'm some sort of standard or end-all-be-all. Question me and and like wonder about the world. Have some experiences that are awkward so that you're learning and pushing yourself and not just staying in this state of eradocentricity where you think that your sexuality is established and that's how it should be for everyone else. Just like, try, try to think about it differently. Yeah. Hmm. Super confusing though. I agree. Super confusing. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, it's not simple. And I, I think I learned that the most when I became a parent, because before mm. that I could really, um, you know, look at how people raise their kids and be like, black and white. It really is this easy. You just give him the condoms, you teach him how to use them, encourage him to start when he's masturbating so that he always associates condoms with pleasure and condoms with orgasm. And um, when I started working with my own kids, the ones that I am responsible for um, value developing with, uh, it became so much more nuanced. And suddenly it was like, oh gosh, what are what are the values that i want to attach to the lessons about their sexual health oh mm-hmm. so hmm.
1: <laughs> well i've got a couple questions i'd love to ask if Ooh, there's time do. okay yeah so so something i i'd love to talk about with a professional okay. is uh the view of uh how fast, uh, intimacy, sexual intimacy occurs when you're dating new people. You know, there's the stereotype of, Oh, you can't have sex on a first date. It'll never go anywhere. If you really like them, it has to be three dates or seven dates. And so it's a very sort of complicated issue. And I have my own opinions I'd like to share, but I'm, I'm curious what you've heard, what you, what you, uh, what you think. But that kind of whole realm.
0: So what comes up for me is a curiosity about when we as a species are going to accept that humans are diverse and mm. there is no one size fits all formula for success or life or anything like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not everybody is served by waiting until marriage and not everyone is served by uh, the heterosexuality or monogamy or, you know, any of those standards that we set. So in that, um, my response to when intimacy starts, gosh, sounds like a whole video in and of itself. I, <laughs> I would it less by time and more by, um, the factors that you want to be in place, to make that decision from. So for me, it would be, do I have enough? Um, do I have the ability to contact this person? If I contract a sexually transmitted infection from them or somehow give one to them and we're estranged, do I have the ability to have that conversation with them? Uh, is there enough trust to know that whatever strange thing that I'm into sexually as vanilla or kinky as that is that they will respect my privacy. Um, What else Uh, do we have a place for me that is warm and clean uh, and private to engage in whatever intimacy that is. And I'm trying to attraction. Isn't really on that list for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when I, when I choose a partner it is, but I think uh, I can um, I can envision being a sex worker or a sexual healer. And in that scenario, the intimacy has nothing to do with whether or not I'm attracted to them. It has more to do with um, mm. the professionalism. So what would be a fourth factor? Mm, you know, probably like uh, just how I feel my intuition about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like those answers.
0: OK, good. I-
1: I especially like the 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 first major point where there there's no one-size-fits-all absolute rule, which I've never thought there should be. But some people are – that's a big deal to them. And I think like I've been on first dates. I mean, just separate from anything else, it's like you could come into a first date and talk to the person for a minute to set it up. You could have been talking to them for months or already know them. So already – There's a tremendous amount of context that you are missing in that. Just how many dates should it be type of rule. Um, And then so there I don't remember what comic said this, but I've quoted it many times because he tells it as a joke. But I think there's a lot of truth in this joke, which is um, how a guy feels about a woman after having sex on a first date. And depends entirely on how he feels about himself. If he thinks that he's a piece of shit and he has low self-esteem, then he's not going to feel great about that woman because he thinks, oh, well, I suck. And she slept with me on the first date. Like, she must have low standards. She must, like, give it up to anyone. And you get into that sort of slut-shaming. But if they have a very high opinion of themselves and high self-esteem, they think, wow, she had sex with me on a first date. She must have really great taste. Like, she could see how great this was and... Wanted to take advantage the first time she saw it. Um, So he tells it obviously much better and in a much funnier way. But I've honestly found that to be very truthful of people who have that low self-confidence don't feel great when intimacy sometimes occurs very quickly. Whereas I'm pers- I don't know if it comes across at all, but I've got pretty high self-esteem. I've got a high opinion of myself, and I feel very confident about myself, who I am, um, and who I am as a as a romantic partner. And so uh, it doesn't happen often. But if those sparks fly that first time I meet somebody, I feel no shame, and I certainly don't have any negative feelings towards them. If anything, there's a tremendous amount of positive feelings going on. Um, and I certainly don't think that if, cause I've had intimacy happen very slowly in some relationships and some just boom, happens right away. And that's had no bearing on what is going to happen afterwards, as you said. Every situation's different. Everything is contextual. Um, I have just found that it is true that for me, in general, the people who wait longer tend to want serious relationships more, and the ones who do it quicker tend to be less interested in that. Want to have a casual thing, but it's not a steadfast rule. And it kind of makes sense that maybe if you, if your goal is to have a casual relationship and sex is a big part of that, you might want to get to that pretty quickly. Um, and if it's a less important component, maybe other things are more important to you, like seeing what they're like in multiple contexts before you're in that more intimate context. Maybe you want to go to a museum with them. Maybe you want to go to a concert. Maybe you want to go out to dinner and, and see how do they treat the, the wait staff. That's a good one for <laughs> I'm not going to sleep with anybody who's rude to their waiters and waitresses. <laughs> My
0: partner so. says the same thing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I think that you're right. Um, we can have a lot of heuristics for things like, or rules of thumb that may work for us. But again. Even that idea of one's self-esteem or self-worth determining how they feel about the other person—it's still—it's still that black and white. Like there's so much gray to that I could sure. feel really poorly about myself, but have a positive experience with someone where it's like, oh, well, actually, I might be really good in bed, or you know, whatever it is. So, yeah are helpful and not the whole story. Stay curious right
1: right <laughs>
0: did you have more questions
1: uh one other thing I wanted to sort of talk about that I heard on a on a different sex podcast was the the um the thought that um, being in a casual sexual relationship does or does not prevent you from being in a serious relationship, so the idea being if you're casually sleeping with one person multiple people whatever you're comfortable with whatever people in your life are comfortable with that somehow closes you off to either starting a more serious relationship with that with one of those people or with someone else you might be meeting i think that's a misconception that a lot of people have um because i can say that in my own dating life that if i come across somebody and they are not interested in a serious relationship or i'm not I don't dismiss that. I might try to have that casual relationship. And if we're both okay seeing other people, I don't feel that I'm going in somehow like handcuffed or unable to then uh, pursue something serious with somebody else and then close off that casual relationship. But some people get really hung up on that. Um, And I don't really understand why, but maybe you, you have a better perspective on why people might have trouble sort of thinking that way.
0: So the question is, what, what do I think are the causes that people struggle with uh, open relationships?
1: Yeah, how they uh, think that being in an open relationship prevents you from being able to transition into a serious relationship or finding someone else who might be you might want to have a serious relationship with.
0: And by serious, are you s- are you using that as a synonym for monogamy?
1: That's true. I didn't specify. Yes. In, in my like, case. We can in have my have an case. open,
0: serious relationship.
1: <laughs> that is true. So in, I've never had, um, so the terms that I've used in the people I've I've uh, dated, it's sort of, we say casual when it's non-monogamous and serious when it is monogamous. But now that I'm thinking about it, those are really subjective terms. <laughs> <laughs> so my apologies, I should have known better.
0: No, I mean that that can be your language. Um but I will say for me that open relationships can definitely not any non-monogamy can be very serious and monogamy can be very casual. Um, yes. In fact, I would say if I were to pick one for each, I would say that open relationships in, for me are way more serious than monogamous ones um, mm-hmm. because it just requires um, some different work and negotiation and, um, yeah, communication that is not necessarily there for a single partner relationship. Um, okay. Okay. So, going back to the question though, um, can I rephrase it then to be, oh, why do people think that if I'm in an open relationship, I can't become monogamous? Correct. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I can't speak All right, for that's them, fair enough. but. I think that their reasoning is probably as individual as the the person. Yeah. I don't Mm -hmm. think that there is one explanation for all of that. I mean, maybe it goes along the lines of, um, like the sexual orientation argument. Like if, if you are, um, dating men and dating men and dating men, um, it might be difficult for your partner to understand your ability to date women mm. or your desire to date women, which is absurd because right. it's not uh, sexual orientation is not about your behavior. It is about your attraction. And so I think that the same thing can apply for the relationship dynamic. If you have an open relationship, um, a person might perceive you as uh, polyamorous or non-monogamous in in the in who you are but you can practice monogamy the behavior and still be a polyamorous
1: or non-monogamous person Hmm, that's true uh Something that um, I I watched a a show once where it was about swingers and the swinging sort of lifestyle and and the biggest thing that sort of stood out to me is the level of trust that those relationships require. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the thing that sort of blew me away the most. Is you have to just understand and trust your partner so much to be comfortable that way. And so there was for me um, almost like being in awe of those people. And I'm I'm not sure. I've ever had a relationship where I felt that that I had that strong of a connection with somebody where I felt comfortable in that way. So it it's something that kind of yeah blows my mind.
0: Yeah, I think that there is a component of trust. I also think um, permission comes up a lot for me. It's something we studied in my doctoral program as part of the plicit model where. Uh, Jack Annan proposed that the number one thing that we really need in order to heal from sexual shame or stigma is permission from another person or, or a group of people to just be who we are or change who we are. And so I think if we could give more permission to people to swing or open or play or fantasize or anything like that, we'd see a lot more of it, or we'd at least see a lot less shame connected to it.
1: Yeah. I think the the shame, it's a shame. There's so much shame <laughs> in that area. Cause, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's like I said, it's something that I've never done and I've just um, it, it, I find it really, really a special type of human connection that you can have with other people. Because so in my personal experience, all my open relationships have been with people who I didn't know very well. And that's why I chose to have a, an open relationship with them because I wasn't I didn't want to commit to a monogamous relationship with them. So that was why it, it was open because it was in the sort of early stages. And that's sort of in my own experience, the way I've I viewed, um, monogamy and, and open relationships, but yeah, I've, I've never thought about, uh, or I've never been in a place where I felt that I could, um, could be in that open relationship that like you said, but is a serious one. That's Mm -hmm. a, that's a interesting way to, to think about it and and look at it.
0: Good. I've done, I've done my job today.
1: You absolutely have. <laughs>
0: good. Uh, some physical work, though. Want to do some kegels? Main squeeze, squeeze it good.
1: I do them all the time. Let's do it.
0: You do? How would I you do. like to do them? Would you like to do them Henry style?
1: Um, we could. I'm not sure I know how to tell somebody how to do it while I'm doing it. I can certainly tell you how I do it. Maybe I can tell you my style and then you can instruct us. How does that sound?
0: We'll see. Yeah, We'll try.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So uh, I actually learned kegels in physical therapy. So I was having trouble um, with my urinary tract and a physical therapist said, long story short, that the best way to uh, help would be with kegels. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started going in the routine. So the one I do is I do a half squeeze, and then a full squeeze, and then a release. And I do that 15 times. And then I hold fully for seven seconds, release, I do that 15 times. So we don't have to do it 15 times. But uh, that's the that's my routine.
0: That's hilarious. My body is so conditioned to kegels that you're like half and then my vagina goes half and then you're like full and it goes full. And then you release. <laughs> and like, wow, Henry just made my body do tricks. <laughs> okay, so let me make sure that I understand it. Sure. Because I was doing it while you were saying it and not paying attention to what you were saying. <laughs> um, half full release. Mm-hmm. And then that... A routine 15 times mm-hmm. and then hold for seven 15 times. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see if I can instruct and participate.
1: I believe in you.
0: Thank you. Here we go. Okay, half, whole, release. Second, half, whole, clench, release. Third, half, whole, release. Fourth, half, hold all the way, release. Fifth, half, whole, release. Six, Half, whole, release. Seven, half. Oh, there's half, whole, (laughs) release. We do fifteen. Yes. Okay. Eight, half, whole, release. Nine, half, whole, release. Ten, half, whole, release. Eleven, half, whole, release. Wow, that release was big. Twelve, (laughs) half whole release 13 half whole release 14 half whole release 15 wait did i just do 15? 15 No, you're about to do 15 oh, 15 half whole release
1: there it was then people do can think do of the, the first ones on their own there you go yeah. what, do you, what do you think of that routine
0: i really like it good it's probably more than we usually do on the podcast and i'm feeling stronger than ever <laughs>
1: That's good. Are you always sitting when you do them?
0: No. Um, there have been people where we'll get on the ground and do different things. Or mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'm always sitting because I can specifically remember an episode that I did with one of my kiddos who is a roller derby player. And so we were doing things on the ground. Because
1: for me, I, it was weird to be sitting because I'm always lying down on the floor.
0: Ah. Um,
1: I I work out almost every day and I have a stretching routine that's a part of that. And so since I already have to do that, and I'm already sort of on the floor moving around. That's when I found the best time to incorporate the kegels is, all right, I'm done with the stretching. I'm done with the foam rolling. So I'm just going to lie down, do that nice little sort of ending before I take my shower.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you. I like it. Do you have any <laughs> sex credit
1: homework? Now you can practice at home. Dr. No gives you sex credit uh, I can't remember what sex credit homework is.
0: It's where we give an assignment to people between to do between now and the next episode. And I've actually come up with something for us, unless you have something.
1: Um, well, if you've come up with something, I, I don't want to deprive the audience. It's probably better than mine.
0: No, I mean, it is yours. So I was thinking about uh, the very beginning of our conversation, Mm -hmm. how you described the converse the the very beginning of our conversation, you described talking with one of your moms about, you said, losing your virginity or having sex for the first time and Mm -hmm. her kind of intuition about that. Right. And I was like, oh, sex or credit, that would be so great for people to... Have that conversation with someone in, who was in their life at that time and say, how, how old did you think I was going to be when it happened, right? Because you, said, you mm-hmm. said your mom was hoping you would be older. And when did you think it was had happened and how did you know? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of fascinating to me. And I think for myself, um, my parents never gave me a timeline, but they, they had waited or said that they had waited until marriage to have sex. And so that was just kind of part of my culture. And then I don't think that they realized what age I had had sex until I sent each of them a bound copy of my thesis where the preface was my first sexual intercourse experience. And I was much younger than I think they realized. Uh, So I think Hmm. it's a, a powerful conversation to have. And it can open up more dialogue about how we perceive each other and and what matters. Like, does it matter when we had our first experience or who it was with or where it took place and what are the value systems built around that? I don't know. Hmm. If you have something better,
1: we can add it. Oh, let me think for a moment. Um, hmm. I had a fleeting one, but it's terrible. So I won't subject the audience. (laughs) That's Um, okay. So... So does that sound
0: reasonable
1: then? No, it seems reasonable. uh, What was floating through my head while you were talking about that was um, another reason I was so glad to have the open relationship with my family. Otherwise, I would have possibly done something Really dumb at that age, Mm -hmm. Um, so I I I haven't talked to a lot of my friends, so I don't know what a lot of first sexual experiences are like. But for me, it would the my first time lasted over an hour, Mm -hmm. so it was a very long experience, and um, I just thought that was kind of how it went. That was pretty normal, and my my partner at the time really liked that. She wanted to go on sometimes even longer. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can go for like an hour and a half or two hours in one session consistently. And so I started looking into Viagra, not knowing anything about it. And so I was like, I should probably ask my mom. She could probably tell me about it. And she scared the hell out of me talking about if you're that young and you don't need it, all the things that could go wrong if you were to take Viagra. So I'm Uh really glad I talked to her about it because, um, you know, you can have blood clots and all sorts of other issues if, if you're not, if you don't think about it before you take something like that. And just because I didn't understand the context, it's like, how long do you want to last? Do you know how long her body can take that? <laughs> like, what are you thinking? <laughs> kind of a thing. So, um, so I was really glad we were able to talk about that not do something monumentally stupid. So well,
0: just uninformed. Trying yes. to do the best you can, and then yeah, you avoided priapism. That's good. Good, good job, Henry.
1: <laughs> good job, Henry's thank moms. You. Yes, no, they've, they've, they've done a great job.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for being on this explanations podcast. We did it.
1: We did it.
0: Woo! Yeah, that's awesome. And Cora and Parle, I'm still learning.